Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the forum on critical issues confronting China. Today, we're really privileged to have a new academic star who studies a contemporary China to give us a presentation. She's Yuan and from Singapore, but then came to United States for college and graduate school. Let me tell you what a kind of talented research work she has done. I would say she used a new approach to study contemporary China by applying complex and systematic thinking to study the political economy of China. She relied on empirical evidence, but more than that, she actually do field work, interview people, collect primary data by herself and her team. So as a result, she does both qualitative and quantitative methods to employ both in her work and give a richness that often lacking when person just use qualitative or quantitative method alone. But foremost, I believe she takes a balanced view for China. She's not trying to criticize China or trying to actually be trying to excuse China. She give us a objective balanced view. So I, I found her most recent book, China's Gilded Age, gives me a new understanding about corruption. And when she actually decomposed corruption into what she called the unbundled corruption index, that really sort of opened up the black box and give us really a new understanding of corruption and the consequences of different types of corruption. Yuan Yang is already been recognized by the academic and public world. She's a full professor of political science at University of Michigan. She has recently won the founding prize of Theodore Scotchport Prize from American Political Association, Science Association. And she also was named the prestigious Andrew Carnegie Fellow. So without further ado, I give you Professor Yuan Yuan Yin. If I might just jump in briefly, my apologies, Professor. Um, I, I, I want to just let people know how the Q&A works because I'm sure we'll have lots of great questions from this. Um, so those of you who have been here before do know um, there is a Q&A tab at the bottom of your screen. Just enter any questions you have in there during the talk and we'll try to get to as many as possible. If you want to be anonymous, click the anonymous box. If not, please kind of let us know who you are, or where you're from, um, so we know who's asking the question. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you to the Fairbank Center for inviting me and a big thank you to Professor Xiao. Uh, I'm really over.
a reward for any author to have your books read and you've gone way beyond that. So I'm incredibly uh, thankful to your generosity. Um, it gives me special pleasure to speak today at the Fairbank Center, um, particularly this year, as a small way of honoring the legacy of Professor Ezra Vogel, who had directed the center. Uh, Professor Vogel bequeathed a great deal of wisdom for the world, including the center, and people around the world who have been inspired by his scholarship and his virtues as a person. And I'm one of them. So if you indulge me, um, let me share one remembrance before I go into my presentation. So I happen to know a Chinese professor who teaches Marxist theory in China. So as you can imagine, she is very politically correct, never says a critical word about politics, always toes the party line. And one day she comes to me excitedly and says, you know, almost shaking my shoulders and says, do you know that there is this book in Chinese that writes about the Tiananmen? And I was like, cool, which book is that? And of course, she holds out the Chinese version of this book. And so I gave her my English version as a gift because I have several copies of that. But what that um, tells me is the incredible ability of Professor Vogel's scholarship to reach across divides, to speak to Chinese and American conservatives and liberals alike. And so that has had a real deep inspiration for me. Um, and you can see that in today's presentation, if I could share this screen. I hope everyone is seeing the screen, yes? Okay, so this, so this famous biography of Deng by Professor Vogel has a deep impact on me. Um, I remember meeting Professor Vogel back when I was a graduate student and when he was writing this book, and he said he wanted to write a biography of Deng because Deng is the most important modern Chinese history, and he wanted to uh, help Americans understand this history. And he used the story of one leader, a very important leader, to tell a bigger story about China's transformation, which is not just about China's transformation, but also about the transformation of the world. So in the spirit of this scholarship today, I would like to share with you the stories of two Chinese leaders, national level, but at the subnational level. And using their stories, I believe we can get a glimpse into the story of China's Gilded Age, which Deng Xiaoping had launched in 1978. So the story begins at a turning point in Chinese politics. November 2012, the newly anointed paramount leader Xi Jinping delivers his first speech to the Politburo. On the top of his agenda is corruption. He did not mean words. Corruption, he declared, will doom the party and the nation if it is not treated. China has an abundant stream of corruption scandals. Almost every day a new one appears on the news. And one of the most egregious cases is Lai Xiaoming, 
the chairman of a state-owned asset management company, Lai amassed nearly 2 billion yuan in bribes, and he was notorious for having more than 100 mistresses. The stories like these seem to indicate that China is One prominent example of this interpretation is Min Xinpei's book, China's Crony Capitalism. Based on 260 corruption scandals reported in the media, he concludes that China is a kleptocracy with a predatory autocratic regime marked by utter lawlessness. Now, these are big words, so let's make sure that we understand what he means. Kleptocracy means rule by thieves, a government in which those in power steals. Predatory means a government that extracts from society and provides little public goods. Now, if Pei's dire portrait of China is correct, then that generates a deep puzzle. as the Philippines under Marcos and Nigeria under Abaca were all mired in poverty. If China is indeed a predatory kleptocracy, then why has it sustained four decades of economic growth and transformation? Pei's answer is consistent. In 2006, he warned the international community to start preparing for China's descent into long-term stagnation. And 10 years later, he repeated the CCP is in late-stage decline. In other words, he's saying, just wait, the end is coming. But regardless of what happens in the future, how China has come so far in the past 40 years, from a communist backwater to the number one competitor of the United States, remains to be explained. And that is the task of my book. My answer is simple. In fact, China is not a usual predatory kleptocracy, but a bureaucracy with corrupt and competent officials. To unpack this answer, today I draw on one particular chapter of my book, China's Gilded Age. And as a first step, we'll take a look at what corrupt and competent officials look like in reality. That will raise deeper questions, such as why do they behave in this way? And what are the effects of Xi's anti-corruption campaign? Those will be addressed in other parts of the book, and we are happy to chat about that during the Q&A. For now, what's important to know is that media scandals are one-sided. They don't tell you that many corrupt leaders were political stars before they fell, famous for promoting growth and delivering results. One notorious example is Bo Xilai, the former Chongqing party secretary and Xi Jinping's political rival who fell in 2012. Another is Ji Jianye, mayor of Nanjing, who fell in 2013. Now let's take a look at their rise and fall. For those of you who remember 2012, which amazingly was nine years ago, Bo Xilai's scandal dominated the news cycle all year long. Today, he's mostly forgotten. But there is value in revisiting his case 
because his scandal and the corruption crisis that he represented defined the moment of Xi's rise. There are a few things you should know about Bo Xilai. First of all, he is a princeling, the son of Bo Yibo, one of the CCP's most senior leaders. So you can think of him as a modern-day Chinese aristocrat. And while most Chinese politicians were dull and unmemorable, Bo was praised by the media as tall, handsome, and charismatic. The BBC described him as the nearest thing that China has to a Western-style politician. In 2007, Bo was inducted into the Politburo, which makes him a contender for the top post. But in that same year, perhaps because the central leaders under Hu Jintao were rattled by his ambition and charm, they sent him off to faraway Chongqing, a southwestern backwater as the provincial party boss. But instead of lying low, Bo kicked up the biggest splash possible. Within five years, Bo Xilai astonishingly turned around Chongqing's fortunes, transforming it from a poor inland province into an economic powerhouse and a gateway into Western China. His governance and leadership had five key features. First, it was status. Growth was driven by investment and debt, large infrastructure projects, and heavy government borrowing. Secondly, he was populist. He implemented a number of massive, highly visible projects that benefited the poor. Third, he was trailblazing, advancing policy innovations in areas such as rural land sales. And fourth, he was socialist, or at least he wanted to project himself as being more socialist than the other leaders who had snubbed him. He encouraged the mass singing of Maoist songs, Maoist nostalgia, and criticisms of capitalism. And last but not least, he was not afraid of using coercion. He ordered a violent crackdown on organized crime, which in the process implicated more than a number of private businesses who were beaten and tortured. If you take a look at this list, do you find it familiar? Might you have seen it somewhere else? Now, if it reminds you of Xi, you are probably not alone, except Xi's policies are taking place on a national scale today. But Bo's fall came as swiftly and as dramatically as his rise. His house of cards came crashing down on 6 February in 2012, when his henchman and police chief Wang Lijun fled to the U.S. consulate in Chengdu with incriminating evidence about Bo and his wife. About a month later, Bo was officially seized by investigators. By August, Bo's wife was sentenced for the murder of a British businessman, Neil Haywood, who acted as a fixer and an intermediary for the Bo family. And by July 2013, Bo was officially charged with corruption, bribery, and abuse of power. To sum up the turn of events, an editor at the Wall Street Journal quipped, it's like a Hollywood movie. But apart from the salacious details of Bo's scandals, there are a few important things that you should know about Bo's legacy in Chongqing. 
First, he delivered impressive economic growth. Under Bo, Chongqing pulled off a double-digit annual growth rate of 15%, even as the rest of China was suffering under the 2008 financial crisis. In 2006, Chongqing ranked at the bottom, 26 out of 31 provinces in GDP growth. As soon as Bo took office in 2007, it jumped to third in rank, reaching first in 2011. Bo's leadership delivered more than just economic growth. In his campaign branded Five Chongqing, he set goals across five areas of public welfare: residential life, transportation, greening, public safety, and public health. And he delivered concrete results across all of them. Most notable of all was Bo's large-scale construction of low-income public housing for the poor. Now contrast this list with Pei's characterization of China as a predatory autocratic regime. What predatory means a government that extracts but does not provide public goods. Evidently, at least in Chongqing, this is a government that did provide public goods. It is no surprise, therefore, that Bo was genuinely popular and appreciated in Chongqing. Despite the charges of corruption against him, one netizen wrote on Weibo: "Bo gave us annual 15% growth. Every day he gave 1.3 million rural children free eggs and milk. He gave rural residents the same health insurance as urban residents. I will miss him." As a princeling, Bo Xilai's status is exceptional, but. At lower rungs of the bureaucracy, there are other paradoxical figures like him, who are neither pure villains nor heroes, and one of them is Ji Jianye. Unlike Bo, Ji was born into a poor family in Jiangsu Province. He worked his way up a 39-year career, starting as the bottom rung as a publicity officer in Suzhou. And then subsequently, he rose to leadership positions in Kunshan, Yangzhou, and Nanjing. In 2013, Ji's career came to an end when he was seized for corruption, making him the tenth vice ministerial level official to fall in Ji's crackdown on corruption. Media description of officials are very different before and after they fall. Here's a list of the top ten words that the state media used to describe Ji Jianye after he was investigated for corruption. Naturally, all the focus was on his problem, power, and corruption. Before he fell, however, he was connected with very different words. He was described using the words development, urbanization, construction, society, services, industries, economy, and civic affairs, painting the image of a leader. Who got many things done? In particular, Qi was most remembered for his legacy in Yangzhou, where he was the party secretary from 2002 to 2009. Nanfang Weekend, a Chinese newspaper, wrote, "Qi is the leader who has made the greatest contribution to the city since 1949." And importantly, he did not achieve this feat simply by building ghost cities and redundant industrial parks. Rather, he practiced adaptive governance. We cannot blindly copy Kunshan, he said. 
Instead, we must forge a development path compatible with our conditions in Yangzhou. He decided to brand Yangzhou as a city blending ancient culture and modern civilization. And immediately he embarked on a massive demolition and reconstruction project, tearing down 130 streets and areas around Yangzhou's river. This earned him the nickname Mayor Bulldozer. The locals even coined a rhyme for him. To demolish, he stamps his feet. To topple, he points. Ji's ambitious makeover did not only succeed in attracting tourists and investors, it also raised the prices of luxury properties around the refurbished lake. And in doing so, Ji increased the stock of personal rents that he could collect from developers eager to buy his favors. One of them is a privately owned company, Goldmantis, which became the primary conduit to which rents were generated and shared. The owners include Zhu Xinliang, also known as the richest man in Suzhou. Under Ji Jianye, the company's profits grew 15 times during six years of Ji's tenure. It funneled a percentage of stocks to the mayor, making this a literal profit-sharing scheme, where the mayor had a direct share in the profits of this company and indirectly in the prosperity of the city. He deposited this bribe with one of his trusted associates in the company who helped the mayor to invest and make loans using this sum of money. But in China, collusion comes with a heavy price. When Ji fell, all of his business associates were detained with him. So what have we learned from a deep dive into the profiles of two Chinese leaders? We gain a deeper understanding into how crony capitalism really works in China. First, corrupt Chinese politicians are not purely predatory. They can be simultaneously corrupt and deliver not only economic growth, but also social welfare and public goods. Second, their personal benefits are linked to growth, making this a system of profit sharing. The more the economy grows, the more rents they can collect. And third, this does not mean that cronyism is good. Like the steroids of capitalism, it produces serious side effects over time. With financial risk, inequality, and policy distortions. Because some sectors generate more rents than others, Chinese politicians have been particularly invested in stimulating the real estate and construction sectors. This has led to speculative bubbles and mounting government debt. And fourth, Chinese crony capitalism is competitive. And this is a feature missing in other kleptocracies. Fierce regional competition means that local leaders must demonstrate ambition and ability in order to attract valuable clients. And conversely, the capitalists must also prove themselves able and useful in order to connect with the most competitive and promising politicians like Bo Xilai. With these insights in mind, how should we evaluate divergent claims about Chinese governance? 
On the one hand, some insist that China is a kleptocracy that is about to collapse. Yet another camp praises China profusely for being a meritocracy. Daniel Bell says that Chinese officials are selected according to their ability and virtue. Eric Lee, whose TED Talk has been viewed three million times, says that the CCP is one of the most meritocratic political institutions in the world today. So who is right, and who is wrong? My answer is that both are partial, because the full picture is that China is a corrupt meritocracy. Normally, we think that this phrase is an oxymoron because merit and corruption should be diametrically opposed. The common assumption is that in a given political system, there are some people who are competent and the rest are lousy. And when there is corruption, we think the lousy officials are chosen over the competent ones. But China's political system is so enormous. That there are more than enough competent officials for a very small number of seats. Their differentiating factor, over and above basic competence, is ambition, ruthlessness, and awesome results. Cronyism helps these ambitious things done. You can think of campaign finance in the American context. Take the example of Bo Xilai's favorite associate, Xu Ming. Who functions as Bo's henchman as well as his family's ATM machine? Xi Ming is the Chinese version of the robber barons of America's Gilded Age. He was a self-made man. His first pot of gold came from taking charge of construction projects in Dalian when Bo was the mayor. Cleverly, he used soil and sand dug out from one reclamation project to build another massive square. Both of these were Bo's signature projects. Caixin, the investigative magazine, described his method as killing two birds with one stone, and innovative. What this tells us is that normally the word crony brings to mind goons who are ignorant about doing business, but in China's hyper-competitive environment, goons will not make it far enough to meet Bo Xilai, let alone work for him. These cronies must also have some level of competence. A second common assumption is that merit is something intrinsic; either you have it or you don't. But merit in China is cultivated by higher-level political patrons who place their proteges in positions where they can easily shine and perform. As a Chinese official who ran a party school and had seen many officials come and go, once told me, "We are, after all, a top-down system, not elected by the people. So it is those on top who decide who gets to move along and ahead." In short, in order to deliver results in the Chinese political system and meet its criteria for merit. Chinese politicians rely both on their corporate clients and the political patrons. Rarely can they do it on their own merit. Now, if you think about this statement, actually, it is not entirely alien to the American political system, except, of course, that in democracies, it is voters who decide who wins office.
My final takeaway is this: paradoxes define China's political economy. China's growth is impressive but risky and imbalanced. The CCP is authoritarian, but Chinese regions are decentralized and highly competitive. Chinese officials are prone to corruption, and yet they can be fiercely capable. Understanding China requires that we resist the temptation to look at only one or the other side of the coin. Instead, we must accept its paradoxes. Thank you. And I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Yan, and、uh, that's a really uh, interesting uh, presentation through two cases, and show how the corruption and meritocracy come together, or and.、Uh, And also, you point out what China was able to produce under two of the quote corrupt officials.、Uh, let me ask you a, a, a question. By、uh, can you give us、uh, relate to your earlier work? How were you class? By the corruption done by Bo Xilai and Xi Jinping, as what type of corruption did they engage in, and then how did they share their profits with the lower levels? That's all part of your research work, which is so interesting in your book, and I thought you should. Give us some insight about that. Thank you very much.、Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to、um, expand on Into four different types. We think about corruption one-dimensionally as just one of the same thing,、um, and these different four different types、um, include, first of all, petty theft, which is extortion. And in the 1980s and 1990s, that was very common in China. You know, a policeman would basically just come up to you and you know shake you down for protection money.、Uh, And that again was very common in the 1990s. The third type is what I call speed money, which is petty bribes you pay to get over red tape and get your business license faster. And today, China, in terms of speed money, is much lower than other developing countries like、um, Cambodia or India. So the kind of corruption that really dominates and defines China's political economy today is what I call excess money. Meaning you're paying big bribes, not because you're trying to overcome red tape, but because you're trying to buy for officials like、um, Bo Xilai and Ji Jianye were able to give their clients. So that is the particular type of corruption. Another point I would add is that excess money in China is 
also qualitatively different from access money that exists in advanced capitalist democracies like the United States, where that kind of corruption is legalized and institutionalized. So we might, in the US, we don't call it corruption, but we might call it influence paddling or buying access. And so that is why we do see um, the Trump presidency um, building its platform on the promise to drain the swamp, right? So in the US, those corruption exists, but it's legalized. I think what distinguishes China is that access money is still entirely revolved around powerful officials like Bo Xilai, and it's illegal. So it comes in the form of these massive bribes that I have, um, that I have described. How do they share their spoils? There are several ways to do that, and it depends on who they share it with. Um, I think there are two main groups of people. The first is the corporate clients with which they share the spoils. And I think Ji Jianye is the most illustrative case because um, they literally set up a company to share the spoils. This company would get construction projects that the mayor assigned to it. And so his um, development projects in uh, urban rezoning, beautifying the environment, all of that fed indirectly into his business for which he would actually be paid. The other kind of sharing relates to how these local leaders share the wealth with the rest of the bureaucracy. And I think we tend to neglect the rest of the bureaucracy in China, but bear in mind that there are about 20,000 public employees or civil servants in an average county in China. And unlike Ji Jianye, they don't necessarily get to collect these big bribes because they don't have that level of power. And so in one chapter of the book, I look at how the local governments would use the tax revenue earned by the local government to distribute supplementary perks to their civil servants. Over time allowances, bonuses, free vacations and so forth. And so even though their formal civil service pay is very low, and it's standardized throughout the country, in practice, you find extremely wide variance in actual pay. tied to the ability of their local government and their local leaders to produce economic growth. Hi, Bill, I think you might be muted. You can see I'm technology challenged. I don't even know how to unmute myself. Let me uh, go to a question raised by the audience by Ogi Chow. Uh, is the corruption under Xi Jinping more or less or different than under the previous regime? I think the short answer is that, first of all, we can say less to the Chinese officials are really corruption. So they are reining in their behavior to the point where they actually refuse to approve investment projects. So I think to that extent, we could say that it's less. But I think the more important point is that I think it's it's different and 
is being carried out, I think in the coming years and in the future, it might actually shift from um, the current conventional sectors, which is real estate and construction, to other sectors, for example, technology and innovation, where tremendous amount of government subsidies are being poured in, and they have very little transparency and accountability. So I would say overall less to the extent that officials are terrified the difference. No, you're muted again. Thank you. That's a very uh, interesting answer. And uh, are you undertaking a new study? Uh, that would be the, my personal follow-up question. But before you answer that, though, let me go to another question by Gerard McKinney. Uh, he wants, uh, because you mentioned India, India, he said, how will you compare the corruption between China and India? That is an excellent question. And I am um, I'm always intrigued by the comparison between China and India. And in my unbundled corruption index, um, which is an index that shows you the prevalence of the four different types of corruption that I've described, um, you can see a side-by-side -side comparison. India is usually perceived as equally corrupt. So on the CPI score, they are side-by-side -side, and in the total score side-by-side, -side, but their structures of corruption are different. So in India, the most dominant type of corruption is speed money. So paying petty bribes to overcome bureaucratic delays and red tape, that is the most common type. And in China, the most common type is access money, paying for a privilege deals. And I think one of the possible explanations for this divergence in their structure has to do with regime type. So in India, because public officials, um, because it is a fragmented democracy, public officials derive their power from the ability to block decisions, not from the ability to um, open you know, paths unilaterally. And so bribes are being paid in India primarily to get over the hurdles that the bureaucracy throws in the way of businesses. Whereas in China, you actually see a very pro-business environment, but where bribes are paid, special deals from the leadership over and above what the government already offers to investors in general. Okay. Uh, so you're able to differentiate that uh, between China and India, it's a type of the corruption. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill, Bill Oliver Hall has a question for you. Uh, in a way, as a follow-up on the, the first question, uh, let me start with a comment about China and India. In, in China, officials have goals that they're supposed to meet if they want to get promoted or keep their jobs. And their corruption often 
often supports achievement of those goals. In India, there are no such goals. Uh, it, it's okay to be corrupt in ways that destroy growth and, 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 and inhibit national goals. And I think that's a, a fundamental difference. Uh, in China, uh, a lot of the growth has come from local officials being very innovative. And uh, <clears throat> as long as they achieve their goals, uh, it's sort of okay if you break the rules, or it was. And, and now they're, they're afraid. Uh, they break any rule, they're vulnerable to the anti-corruption campaign. Is, is this change enough to fundamentally change um, China's economic uh, growth rate? Um, it's a good question and one and a question that many people ask. My first response is that when the outcome of concern is growth, we have to keep in mind that growth is being influenced by many factors and corruption and bureaucratic behavior is an important one, but it's the it's only one among many. Right. So I would be very careful about making sweeping statements like, you know, how corruption, you know, will. Will, will, will affect growth. You know, there are obviously bigger factors like the pandemic and the trade war. That said, um, the question of how would the changes in bureaucratic behavior affect growth, I think that will depend in large part on Xi's own policies toward anti-corruption and toward the bureaucracy. To crack down on crony capitalism in principle should be good for growth because if you create a more transparent and fair business environment that in the long run should make it easier to do business in China. But I think what his anti-corruption campaign has done, as you pointed out, is that it has gone much further than that and has really terrified officials. He's also putting a lot of um, unrealistic expectations on them. More and more targets, a lot of these targets are in conflict with one another. And uh, Xi's ideal is that he wants Chinese bureaucrats who are pure and honest and yet daring and risk-taking. He actually gave a speech with all of these adjectives all in one speech. Um, and so I think that at this point, the central leadership hasn't actually made the hard decision which is if you want to have strictly honest bureaucrats, then you're not going to have those risk-taking innovative qualities, in which case you need to transfer those qualities to the private sector and civil society. So someone else takes over the entrepreneurial qualities. I think the problem right now is that she is clamping down on civil society and the private sector, but he's also straight-jacketing the bureaucracy. I think that doesn't bode well for the economic and business trajectory going down the path. But again, I want to be cautious in saying that that's only one among many other factors that will shape China's growth. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, also, uh, in January, uh, asked a question which is a different kind 
is under what condition you think the competitive provinces might opt for greater autonomy? Because they're competitive, they want more freedom to act. That is a very good question. And I think it has always been going on, in fact, that the competitive trying to find ways to have more autonomy. And um, well, I think a good example is Shenzhen. Right? Shenzhen is known as the hub, the future of China, the technological hub. Um, and recently, I think last year when she visited Shenzhen, it definitely gave the city um, a kind of special privilege to you know, go even further in any kind of innovations that has already been doing um, in the realm of innovation. So the short answer is yes, competitive provinces have actually always been trying to lobby for ways for more autonomy. Okay. Another question is from Xu Yin. Uh, will you share your thoughts about the most recent uh, root reasons for coexistence, corruption, and competency of the party leaders? The co coexistence of of corruption and competence. Does it have anything to do with the lack of a sufficient check and balance in the of the party officials and the political system? Sure. So the coexistence not about the lack of checks and balances, because um, if it's just about lack of checks and balances, then we should accept we should expect to see a kleptocracy. Right, a bureaucracy that does not perform at all, right? Since there are no checks and balances and no accountability, and as I've tried to explain, the coexistence of corruption and competition has to come from the fact that, first of all, China is a bureaucracy that is very performance oriented, and this is a point that William pointed out, right? There goes from the top. The overall ideology of the of the party is focused on performance, but at the same time, in order to perform. As a Chinese official, you need to have resources. And corruption and cronyism actually provides ambitious politicians with their necessary resources. So if you look at Bo Xilai and his henchmen, uh, they do a lot of things for him. They carry out his pet projects. They donate to public works when necessary. Uh, they provide networks of support. So they're a group of people that he can rely on. They also provide, of course, his his, lux his luxurious lifestyle and pay for his family. So it is actually this, this um, coexistence of the desire to perform, the pressure to perform, and the resources needed to perform. Uh, and that is why you see actually the coexistence of corruption and competence in China, which appears paradoxical, but is actually built into the Chinese political economy. A different question, which I think is interesting. When we think about the cause of corruption, and you have highlighted some of the incentive structures under the corruption, which produce certain meritocracy or 
outcome. Uh, will you change to deal with anti-corruption measures? Will you introduce some remedies to reduce the corruption but maintain the good outcome? In other words, if I got to do anti-corruption, how would I do it? Is that kind of yes. the question? Yes. Well, I don't think I have the I have the privilege of designing the anti-corruption campaign, but let me let me let me try to take a stab. Um the book is called China's Gilded Age because it makes a parallel and indirect comparison with America's Gilded Age. Um, and so if you look at the two societies, one today and, the, and another in the 19th century, they have very similar problems, which is very rampant, serious corruption, crony capitalism and inequality. And so we can actually take lessons about anti-corruption from the American Gilded Age. So America's Gilded Age um, progressed into the so-called progressive era through bottom-up mechanisms. So there was sweeping democratic reforms, electoral reforms, more political liberalization. You have muckraking journalists, uh, independent prosecutors. So those were the means, the bottom-up means that America used to deal with the excesses of capitalism in the 19th century. Um, and I think that today the Chinese leadership should take some useful lessons from that American history because they have chosen a different path. They have chosen an entirely top-down path, um, which actually suppresses civil society, investigative journalism, um, public transparency, and opted to use the strong arm of the state. So they're arresting as many corrupt officials as they can find. And I think that this approach um, has several problems, which uh, is discussed uh, earlier on with, with, with Bill, which is that it terrifies bureaucrats. Um, they are afraid to be risk-taking and innovative. But at the same time, you do not have a free society that's taking over the entrepreneurial and innovative role that they used to play. Um, and there are also limits to the number of corrupt officials and arrest. It's not an institutional solution, right? It's just netting as many bad people as possible, but it's not actually attacking the root causes of corruption. And the root causes of corruption is, one of them is that the government and the party still has so much control over the economy. And so long as they have that control, there will be capitalists who will find some way or another to buy their privileges and deals. Mm. Interesting answer. Uh, another question about the future. If China's future, uh, this by Chris Nielsen, is China's future corruption is shifting from real estate and construction to technology innovation. How will that impede progress in the protection of intellectual property rights in China and ultimately globally? Mm. That is a good question. I wanted to um, stress that that part about the migration of corruption is still only a speculation in my book. So it only appears at the end. And I'm working on new research projects that look at uh, the possibility for 
uh, rents and corruption in areas related to technology right now. So I don't have the full findings yet, but I don't think that the implication is about IPR protection. Where there are rents and corruption, the implication is about the efficacy of the um, state-led drive for innovation in China. So for example, you have billions of dollars of um, subsidies and grants that are being poured into the economy. And then the question is, to what extent is this investment useful? Is it, is it actually yielding innovation or is it being wasted and creating a black box for rents and corruption? I would ask the question this way, and, and this, is, this is what I'm exploring at this point. Mm. Okay, we'll wait for your new research. <laughs> uh, this is a question asked by Jed Schwartz. Do you consider price gouging, gouging and pursuits of the market control symptoms of corruption in China? How much are these practices present today? Um, price gouging. Price, yes. Market, market control. Uh -huh. uh, yes, those are absolutely some of the most prominent types of access money corruption in China. Uh, there are a few sectors where access money is most prevalent because of the nature of that business. So real estate and construction is, is an obvious one because um, the government has control over land. And if it can change the designation of the land immediately, you get lots of rents. Uh, the other one would be services sectors where you need government approvals to access the market. So pharmaceuticals is a good example. Not everyone can go out and sell pharmaceutical and drugs in China. So that would be another sector where we do often see corruption scandals relating to a regulator uh, providing favors and deals and approving certain drugs, but not others. A third one is um, about mining, anything related to the extraction of natural resources and so on, which is again, very dependent on government regulations and approvals, that's, an, that's a third area where I see a lot of uh, scandals. Those are the hot spots of access money in China. We're living in the age of diversity and equality. So I'm going to throw this question at you from someone who is anonymous. How do gender dimensions in corruptive practice in your research. Mm. Is there any difference between gender? That's a very interesting question. Unfortunately, I, I don't specifically examine that in the book, but I, I think it's a good question because it really definitely comes up. Anyone who visits China and has an opportunity to study the government, the first thing you notice is that it's definitely a highly male-dominated environment, right? So, so that is a fact that needs to be acknowledged. Uh, the second thing is that women have always played a prominent role in all of these corruption scandals, mostly uh, as mistresses. So it's always, you know, uh, Lai Xiaoming is famous for his hundred mistresses or mistresses exposing uh, their patrons after their ditch and so forth. So um, that in 
you can see uh, those elements where women plays these um, sidekick role in a negative way. Um, so those are the dimensions that I see, but I but I did not systematically explore that in the book. Okay. Here's an interesting question by Mickey Winkler. How does the population feel about the corruption? When I lived in China, he said, or she said, my students were furious about it. So, so how do you really balance the public opinion against corruption versus any meritocracy may result from it? Mm -hmm. It's a very good question. Uh, in my research, I did not do public opinion surveys about corruption, but I could direct you to um, Bruce Dixon, who has done a number of these surveys. And I think his general finding is that, number one, Chinese people have a lot of complaints um, about politics and governance, but in general, they actually have high trust in the government. And number two, I think most Chinese people are quite happy with the anti-corruption campaign. So they see that as progress being made. Um, then I think the more nuanced and, and, and complex story about public perception is that regardless of, of, of um, whether we know exactly what the public thinks, I think the CCP leaders themselves are keenly aware that their legitimacy is at stake. And that is why for Xi, of all the agendas that he could pick out. And you have to kind of try to imagine that a Chinese leader must have 100 things in front of him. So of all the things that he could pick out, he picked out corruption as the thing that he wanted to highlight at his first speech to the Politburo. And his, he has made that his signature policy. So he's picked um, the first, the, the anti-corruption is the obvious one. And the other thing that he picked is poverty alleviation. Right. So whenever you think about Xi Jinping, you immediately think about these two signature policies. And so I think what, why that is, is actually highly logical because he inherited a Chinese Gilded Age. And a Chinese Gilded Age has problems different from Deng. It's not a poor country, but it is a corrupt and unequal uh, crony capitalist system. And that is particularly damaging for a party that claims to be communist. And so I think for those logical reasons, of all the things that he could focus on, he has really made anti-corruption and poverty alleviation his two signature policies. Well, there's a follow-up question by a someone anonymous that how do, uh, since Bo Xilai enjoys such a pop, popular support, from what he has done, and partly comes through corruption. Uh, how do you see she deals with that then? In other words, we're trying to gain some popular support through the same vehicle. I think that's the nature of the question. Right. And the related question is then uh, how do you see uh, China? moved in the next five years in the corruption and also the meritocracy 
or in performance, I would say. Yes. Um, good questions. The first question, how Xi deals with war. I think the party dealt with war um, in two simultaneous ways. Um, first of all, they were concerned about his lingering popularity in Chongqing. So at least in about 2013 and 14, there were definitely deliberate efforts to you know, stop talking about war and try to diminish his popularity. But on the other hand, I think the party leaders also looked at Bo's record and thought that um, maybe there are some things uh, that we might take from that. And so that is why, as I alluded to in the presentation, if you look at the five key features of Bo's leadership and governance, um, you find parallels in, in Xi's governance today, right? He is very populist. He, he claims himself to be a champion of the poor. He prefers a status approach and, and he has revived Maoism. So there are definitely uh, similar parallels. And I think one of the ways to explain that is that both Bo and Xi, despite being political rivals, um, saw the same political opportunity for themselves, which is that given current circumstances, given the popular anger about the problems of a Gilded Age, you know, this particular package, this particular platform is the most popular and, and, the, and the best fit for the times. And so I think that's why we see certain continuities despite uh, the party's um, very clear denunciation of, of Boa. Um, and then the second question about, you know, the future in the next five years, and there's always a joke um, that the, it's, it's very hard to make predictions, especially when, especially when it's about the future. <laughs> and so um, I won't hazard to make specific um, um, uh, predictions, but I think what we can do as scholars is to point out certain enduring shifts and enduring trends. And I think if you look at this presentation about corruption and competence, um, one of the enduring challenge that the party will face in the next five to 10 years is that they really need a different system of governance for a new phase of what they call the development. So they no longer just want brute economic growth that produces pollution, capital misallocation and speculate. They want high quality, um, innovative growth. And, and to do that, you have to change the whole bureaucracy. You have to change their targets. You have to change their incentives. You have to balance it out with the, the, the amount of social and political freedoms. And I think that is the big challenge um, facing the party right now. How do, they, how do they actually tweak the governing system so that it will be aligned with this new phase and new goals of economic development? Well, there are two questions related to about the future, but they are more specific. One is, I believe that Kim, Kim Gerhan, does the anti-corruption campaign and the Xi signal the end of the local provincial entrepreneurship model analyzed by Jing Oi? A long engine of growth in reform period that turned CCP cadres into pro-form entrepreneurs. That's also part of your 
your main point. The related question is, what's the decisive practice of the central government keeps the province in check apart from anti-corruption campaign against the, the governors and as well as the leadership team? Good questions. The first one is specifically about the entrepreneurism of the bureaucracy that Professor Oi has uh, written about in the 1990s, um, local state corporatism. And I think it actually ties back to Bill's questions as well about the trade-off between risk-taking and innovation and anti-corruption. Um, so I, on this question, I am actually able to answer with some results from an empirical analysis that appears in the book in the chapter on anti-corruption. And in that chapter, I looked at what are the factors that predicts which um, city leader in China would be investigated for corruption. Is it because of their performance or because of their patronage or something else? And the finding is pretty clear. The single factor that predicts whether an official would be investigated is actually not about performance. It was entirely about patronage ties. Whether the higher level patron um, who protects them, whether that patron himself fell or survived. Um, and so I think what tells us, the finding itself tells us, is that under Xi, Although he has tried to remove corruption, the bureaucracy has actually become more driven by patronage than by performance. So if you want to survive as a Chinese leader under the current circumstances, the most important thing is to have the right patron and to make sure that your patron survives. And it actually is not about your performance economically or otherwise. So I think at least in that time period, we do see a qualitative shift in the nature of the Chinese bureaucracy. How does the party keep um, government officials in check apart from anti-corruption? Um, there are other monitoring mechanisms uh, that have routinely been carried out. For example, the party has traditionally relied on citizen complaints and petitions. And in the now online age, um, a lot of the um, input online, the, the internet opinion can be collected as part of uh, the party's materials for monitoring corruption and other problems. Um, I would also distinguish between the party's desire to control lower level officials with a particular political patron's desire to control his clients. So these two things are intersecting at the same time, right? So the, the party is filled with several different top leaders and they have their own clientele below them. So, so on the one hand, there is this party acting in a coherent way to control corruption. At the same time, you have individual patrons who want to cultivate and maintain their clients and protect them during what is a sweeping anti-corruption campaign. Hey. Now, explain some of the tension in China today. Uh, there are a couple questions or ask you, to, uh, one is, can you compare the corruptive practice in Taiwan with China? 
Uh, the other one is going deeper into China. Uh, what are the corrupted practices in the uh, People's Liberation Army? Is, does your type of corruption exist there too, in another word? Good questions. Let me start with the PLA. So the PLA was known to be very corrupt um, in the 1980s and 1990s because, because China had opened up and the military was severely underfunded. So as a compromise, the party allowed the military to go into business, which, of course, you can imagine is very problematic when you have people with guns who are simultaneously doing business. So in 1998, Zhu Rongji came on board and he very resolutely cracked down on these practices. So, um, so I don't study the PLA per se. So I think it's fair to say that the practices, the kind of uh, profiteering practices of the past are probably in much better control today. And when we do see uh, scandals revolving, you know, surrounding PLA officials, um, I think it's, it's a lot more along the lines of individual behavior the kind of massive bribery uh, that I had described. And I think particularly in the case, in some very sensitive cases, um, it's, it's um, I forgot the name of that particular general who fell, sorry, but he fell along with Zhou Yongkang. So, so meaning to say that in addition to corruption, um, the scandals around PLA also tend to be tied up with power struggles at the highest level for obvious reasons. Um, and then the interesting question about comparing Taiwan and, 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 and China, I think it depends on what time period of Taiwan that you're talking about, because Taiwan itself has undergone a tremendous evolution, right? Um, from, from, from the time it began growing uh, until now. Um, but I would point you to one very interesting essay by Professor Andrew Walder, uh, where he compares um, the CCP today with the Kuomintang. And he says that his argument is that she is very worried um, that the CCP in the Gilded Age would fall under the troubles of the KMT, which was at the time captured by the families, right? super rents, um, he calls it. Um, so I think that that is a useful and interesting parallel uh, we're not, we do not know if she is trying to learn from the former Soviet Union or from the KMT. He's probably just trying to take lessons from wherever is relevant. But I do think the KMT parallel is, it's, 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 it's something we should keep in mind. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to take the prerogative as the moderator to ask you the last question. You have, you shared so well with so many different questions. I would like to go back to your, your book of 2016 about China escaped the poverty trap. One of the major themes in that book is China was able to escape the poverty trap because the, the uh, party leaders down every level has a goal that's and they have to achieve that goal through different means, including corruption, uh, that is mm. economic growth. 
And that, that is a measurable goal and also a very clear goal. Mm. Now China is entering into an era. China has multiple goals now. Economic growth is one, employment is another, environment, climate change is another, aging, social protection, so forth. Mm. Under this new circumstance, how would Chinese bureaucracy perform when the goals are multiple and also some of them are really not measurable? Thank you, Bill, for your final and truly brilliant question. <laughs> it's spot on. It's, uh, it's, I think it's really one of the most fascinating and biggest challenges for Chinese governance today. Uh, something that we didn't see in the reform era for reasons that you pointed out, because the, because the context was different, the priorities were different. And I also find your question timely, because as we know, the CCP will be holding the two sessions this week, which is a very, very important meeting. And I think we can expect to see that at this year's two sessions, the party might either abandon or dilute GDP targets. And everyone will be talking about GDP targets. You know, every single year, that's like the highlight of the party. Everyone wants to see the GDP targets. Um, and I think what your question brings out very wisely is that we actually have to recognize that China has entered a new stage of development and governance where it's not just trying to get more GDP, it wants to get quality development. And that means all of these other goals that you have listed, like healthcare, social welfare, environment, and all of these things. So. I think there are two things that I would point out uh, from my first book. The first challenge facing the, the party is targets overload, as you described, right? Just so many targets. In the past, under Deng, all you had to do was, if you do GDP, that's good. But today, Chinese leaders have to deliver so many things. And you can actually see that under Bo Xilai as well. In addition to economic growth, in order to really shine out, he also promised nearly everything, right? Five Chongqing's and so forth. And now it's more than five. Now it's probably 50. Um, the other problem, as you also pointed out, is that matter to the party in the future or now are impossible to quantify. So take innovation. So this is part of my new collection of projects on innovation and technology, which in addition to the implications for corruption is one of the things I'm really curious about is how does the party actually promote high quality innovation? And it turns out that the party is really frustrated by this because it can set targets. For example, it has set targets for patents. And so once it does that, everyone starts gaming the system to create low quality patents because they're just trying to meet the targets. And it actually undermines the long-term goal of the party to have high quality innovation. So I think this is, we are at a turning point in Chinese politics where it's very clear that the party has but there's still functional political system that was good for the Deng era, the Gilded Age. Mm. And now they're in a progressive era, but they don't have the right governing tools yet. And, you know, they're still trying to try different things out. What about anti-corruption? How about targets? And, 
And so I think that is the big challenge facing facing the party going forward. Thank you very much, Yehan. You really demonstrated the depth and the breadth of your knowledge. You really gave us new insights about the political economy of China and particularly the governance structure and the incentives, how they interact and we're indebted for you. And best wishes on your future research and we hope you will come back then, share your new knowledge with us. Thank you. Thank you. It will be my great pleasure. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Bye.